You ever had to hold on tight? Think about an experience in your life where you've had to hold on tight. Here's a pro tip. First date, do it on a motorcycle because your date will be forced to hold on tight. I can still remember taking my future wife, Nicole, out on our first date, and yes, I'm not as dumb as I look, I picked her up on my motorcycle. I can still remember what it felt like to have her wrap her arms around me for the first time. Okay, That was a time she had to hold on tight. She still jokes that she can't believe her mother let her go out with a guy who picked her up on a motorcycle. And yes, I still miss my motorcycle. I haven't had one since I had kids. Once I had kids, I put the motorcycles away. But I still miss it every springtime. We had to hold on. Do you remember, if you're one of my contemporaries, what's fun about being a pastor who's 45 is that, I don't know if you know about this, but in most churches they talk about the lead pastor as tending to draw 10 years up and 10 years down. So this means I most easily connect with people 10 years older than me, so up to 55. Some of you are a little older than that, but let's call it boomers. And then I tend to connect okay 10 years down, so to people in their 30s. And we have many people in their early 20s who are coming to our church, but the core growth that we've seen at Grace over the last three years is late 20-somethings, early 30-somethings, young adults, young families, and then lots of boomers, okay, no surprise. So if you're my contemporary, you will remember the death trap merry-go-rounds that were popularized in the 1970s. Remember these ones with the 20-foot diameter made from steel, just this high enough off the ground to trap like a child's limb? How many of you remember those merry-go-rounds? You had to hold on tight to those merry-go-rounds. They were so fun, the fastest kid would get on the outside and start running around, and I was usually the fastest kid. So I'd be, do they have these in Brazil? They do. See, Brazilians are also crazy. So you're running, and you're pushing it as fast as you can. Everyone else is sitting in the middle, because as it gets going faster and faster, they're going to get just chucked from the middle by centrifugal force and end up flying off into the playground. Super fun. Super dangerous. They've outlawed them. What's really fun is that every summer, my brother and I tend to be on vacation in some small Ontario town, and small Ontario towns don't have the tax base to completely redo all their parks. So once in a while, you find the merry-go-round of death, and even in our mid-40s, we make that thing spin, and we hold on tight. Right? You may have had to hold on tight. I remember landing on a CP. Anybody old enough to remember when Canadian Pacific had an airline? We were flying CP Airlines, and we were flying on one of the big old 747s, and we were coming back from Israel. I grew up as a missionary's kid in Israel, and so every two years, we'd come back to Canada for a few months for my dad to raise money. And so we would fly back and spend the summer at my grandma's um, cottage, but this time we were coming back for some reason in the winter. I don't remember why. But as we flew, and it wasn't a direct flight. You would fly from uh, Tel Aviv, usually to Zurich, and then from Zurich to Montreal, and then Montreal to Toronto. Today, it's just a direct flight. So we were landing in Montreal in this big old rickety CP 747 in a storm. And I will never forget that big old 747 feeling like a Cessna, right? And a 747 is not supposed to feel like a Cessna. And I was holding on tight. And we landed in a blizzard. I mean, you couldn't even see anything. And as the plane touched down, it kind of began to skid a little sideways before they righted it. And even as an 11-year-old, I knew, now's the time to hold on tight. Maybe you are experiencing the same thing as you hold on tight while pursuing your impossible dream. Can you relate to that? Having to hold on tight as you pursue your impossible dream. You're going to need to learn to hold on tight because the uh, tide is about to turn, just like what happened in Genesis 41. Again, if you're our guest today, I will read the entire chapter. You're welcome. Ah, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. 
And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then... Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said that you, when you hear a dream, can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, so here he's going to repeat the dream. Ancient writers like to repeat things. Modern readers get bored. We're like, we already know this. Why are we repeating it? Remember, this was an oral culture before things were written down. So we like to repeat it a second time. So I'm going to repeat it because the Bible does as well. Behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears, and I told it to the magicians, but there was none who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven ears, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe." And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food, sh that food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. 
and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphenath-Paneah and gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of those seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Menashe, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Genesis chapter 41. As um, I've told you every week here, I'm trying to isolate one keystone habit for you out of this chapter. So here is keystone habit number five out of Genesis chapter 41. Hold on tight since the tide will turn. All right, so that's the keystone habit. If you're writing it down, that's the thing to write down. Hold on tight since the tide will turn. On screen, you'll see the definition of a keystone habit. The reason that I have this definition up there every week is because I want you to get in your spirit the fact that a keystone habit is a habit that cascades into the other habits in your life. It can cause a domino effect in your life. It is a habit so profound and powerful that it has the ability to begin affecting the entirety of your life. Keystone habit number five, hold on tight since the tide will turn. So I don't have a lot of time left, but it's second service, so I can go a little over time if I need to. In the time remaining, I'm going to show you 13 things to keep in mind as you learn to hold on tight. That's what we're going to do. Show you 13 things to keep in mind as you learn to hold on tight. The first thing you're going to need to learn to keep in mind is you're going to need to learn to wait. Okay, I get this out of verse 1. After two years. Okay, after two years. Years. So what's this referring to? The last two characters we saw in this story were the cupbearer and the baker. Remember, they were imprisoned with Joseph because they ticked Pharaoh off. They had their dreams. Joseph interpreted them, said, you'll be restored in three days to the service of Pharaoh. The cupbearer, you'll get your job back. The baker, sorry, bad news. Pharaoh's going to hang you from a tree after cutting off your head. And this is what happened. But the point is, that was two years ago in the timeline of our story. So the cupbearer and the baker are long gone, and Joseph is still in prison. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like you are still in the pit, and meanwhile the rest of your friends, your family, your co-workers, and your peers are going gangbusters? Their life looks perfect, and your life feels miserable. Do you ever feel that way? Like, I'm the only one who's struggling. I'm the only one who is suffering. You'll um, find this when you're dealing with different life stages. And I want to encourage you to hold on tight. 
Maybe um, you are a single person and all of your friends are in relationships and you're feeling like, why am I the only single person when everyone around me is in a relationship? I want to be in a relationship. You feel like Joseph still in prison and all your peers have been set free. Maybe you're in that phase of having a significant relationship and you notice all those relationships around you beginning to take it to the next level. Everyone's getting engaged. And for whatever reason, your partner is not taking that step. And so you're like, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with me? Why is everyone else engaged and I'm not? Maybe you're at the stage where everyone's getting married. You're like, Todd, why are you speaking about these habits and these patterns? Because 95% of people in North America will at some point get married. And I know that these life stages are very significant in almost everyone's life. Maybe everyone around you is getting married and you're like, why are we not married? Or maybe you're surrounded by a bunch of you married people who are busy having kids and you are having a hard time. If you've ever known anybody who has struggled and walked through the infertility journey, you know that the struggle is real. What's wrong with me? Why have my friends been set free into easy pregnancy? Meanwhile, I, like Joseph, am languishing in the pit. Maybe you have kids and it seems to you like your kids are the only bad kids in the whole world. Can I get a witness? You're like, my kid is the devil. Some of us might say amen, right? Like, I made the mistake of going to the YMCA this Saturday. My wife took the kids skiing in Ellicottville yesterday, so I was alone and bored. So it's not good for a man to be alone. That's why God gave Eve to Adam. So when Nikki is gone, I just keep myself busy. So I went to the gym by mistake at 10 a.m. on a Saturday morning, and I texted her afterwards and said, the YMCA is the third circle of hell on Saturday morning. I'm surrounded by demon children and oppressed-looking parents. I saw some of you there. Right? You're like, this ain't no, f- I did my time in hell. I was there. My kids are grown now. I-, I ain't going back. But maybe you feel like you're the only one with bad children. Don't worry. Yes, your children are bad, but most children these days are bad. If you want to fix them, send them to see Pastor Todd. I'll straighten them out real quick. I come from the old school. Okay? Kids start acting the fool around me. I go, they stop. They're like, I'm not going to mess with him. You know, I grab their hand and squeeze a little bit. And they look at me like, don't break my hand, please. Stop shouting. Okay. Right? <laughs> you're not the only one with devil children. Maybe you're a boomer, and all your friends, their kids have left, but your children have failure to launch syndrome. And you're like, what's wrong with me? Why won't my darn kids leave the house? Can I get a witness? Right? You're like, it's darn kids. <laughs> okay? So I'm just saying all that, taking my time with it to just remind you, you're not the only one, okay? And if you feel like you're stuck in the pit, and meanwhile everyone else has been set free, you're biblical. Here's the point. Sometimes you have to wait. Sometimes you have to wait. There'll be more on this a little later. I can tell you something that will help you as you learn to wait. It's my great pleasure to remind you that God steps in. I imagine as you come to accept the fact that God steps in, that might help you as you learn to wait. How do I know that God steps in? Because of verse 1. And Pharaoh dreamed. Remember I told you in week 1 that dreams are very significant in Genesis. Okay, a dream in Genesis does not mean like he ate some weird prunes and had a strange dream. Okay? A dream in Genesis is like code for God stepped in. So, and Pharaoh dreamed means God stepped in. God intervenes. I find it very interesting here that God intervenes in the life of the highest authority in the land. Did you know that Pharaoh would have been considered a living God? 
Many um, scholars believe that this is why Moses emphasized in writing the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, he emphasized the might of Yahweh so much in the Pentateuch, particularly because his original audience, those Hebrews released from captivity in Egypt, would have grown up under centuries of the oppression of the man-god Pharaoh. So this is one of the reasons that Yahweh is made out to be so all-powerful in the Pentateuch, because Pharaoh would have been fresh in their memory. So it's very significant here for the original people who received this story that God interrupts the highest authority in the land. And please note what a disturbing dream it is. Okay, this is a very disturbing dream that God interrupts Pharaoh with. How do I know? Two phrases. Hopefully they're catchy and you remember them. They're disturbing because hashtag zombie cows and cannibal wheat. Right? Zombie cows, cannibal wheat. Very disturbing. So I want you to remember as you learn to wait that God intervenes. And please note that typically when God intervenes, he disturbs you. Now, I've told you, when you preach the Old Testament, it's really important to make sure if you're going to take a concept from antiquity and ask your audience to consider applying it in modernity, you have to make sure that that concept is not like a one-time thing from Leviticus 17 verse 3. Because that might be like a very Leviticus 17 verse 3 thing. And you're like, that's not really for today. But sometimes you'll see something pointed out in this very old document that you know has resonance, that, that has relevance down through the ages. And typically when you find something like that as a preacher, you better do your homework and make sure that it is indeed a pattern that recurs. So I ask you, is God disturbing people when he steps in a pattern that we see throughout Scripture? And everyone said, you betcha. Abraham's comfortable life in Ur of the Chaldees is disturbed in order to send him to the promised land. Noah's comfortable life is disturbed as he has to build and then flee into an ark with his family to preserve the life of humanity. Ruth's comfortable life in Moab is disturbed as first her husband, then her husband's brother, then her father-in-law all die, forcing her to emigrate from Moab to Israel with her mother-in-law Naomi so that she will meet Boaz, so that she will marry him, so that she will be the mother of Oved, who is one of the fathers of Messiah. Messiah, continuing the Messianic Davidic line. God, do you think Ruth was disturbed that her husband died? Do you think she would have preferred that he didn't die? You bet. When God steps in, he is disturbing. Mary's comfortable teenagehood was incredibly disturbed in order to make way for Jesus. You can bet the rich young ruler felt disturbed when Jesus read his mail exactly after he asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, take everything you have, sell it, give all the money to the poor, and then come follow me. How do we know that the rich young ruler was disturbed? Because he did not do what Jesus said, but went away sad, for he was very wealthy. Friends, do not ask God to step into your life without expecting him to disturb you. You're like, but I don't like being disturbed. <laughs> okay. Why does God have to be disturbing? I learned this from a black preacher in Alabama. Okay, now, I have been trying over the last several years to preach a little more calmly. Believe it or not, I got criticized a lot when, like, black preacher from Alabama ease sneaks its way into my life. I just want to ask you to back off a little bit with that because I am one of the first um, members of white suburban culture to grow up under the influence of black urban culture. And so Bill Cosby was a huge influence on my life. Eddie Murphy was a huge influence on my life. Many of the athletes that I idolized growing up had a huge influence on my life. And they came to national prominence from the urban streets of America. 
And so any influence that African-American culture has had on my life is hard won and honest. So when I have a little bit of black Alabama sneak into my preaching, please don't mistake it for caricature, because it is not. In fact, I am honoring the tradition that so fed me in my youth. And so I will have no fear as I um, do my very best impression of the black preacher from Alabama who taught me to put God in his rightful place and to stop complaining about the things that he does that bother me a little bit. Here's what that preacher had to say. You will never scientifize him. You will never mathematize him. You will never historize him. God is God all by himself. He don't need nobody else. You're like, you should preach like that more often. I can. God is God all by himself. He don't need nobody else. Point number three. Three. Not so good at math. Good at the gospel. Not so good at math. God is the one who makes things happen. Keep that in mind as you learn to wait. How do I know? Verse 13. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. This is the cupbearer talking about Joseph interpreting his dreams correctly. So you're like, well, it was Joseph who interpreted it. So why are you saying God is the one who's active? Because Joseph himself said in Genesis 40, 18, do not all interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. Here's the point. Like the um, fool carpenter, you or some of the people you know may think that they make the world go round. Newsflash, you don't. God does. Okay, get that in your spirit as you learn to wait. He's the one who makes the world go around. And it uh, gives me great joy to say, I can't say it without smiling. When he moves, things get moving. Verse 14, part A. Pharaoh called for Joseph. And what did they do? They hurried to bring him to Pharaoh. You know what it says in the original language? And they raced him to Pharaoh. Okay, Pharaoh the God-man, in brackets, says, Bring me that Jew. They raced to get him. They raced to bring him back. Isn't life kind of like this? You're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting. Boom! Things turn around, and you're off to the races. How many of you experienced this in your life? Wave at me if you've ever experienced this. Right? You're building your, yeah, Matt Brace. You're in medical school for a thousand years. It's never going to end. And all of a sudden, boom, and it happens. Right? You're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting. Pow! Things turn around and you're off to the races. So here's my suggestion to you. If you happen to find yourself in a season of languishing, take more naps. You're welcome. This is high quality preaching you're getting this morning. Take more naps, right? Nobody likes a season of languishing, right? Can you identify? You've been in a season of languishing and it's terrible because you're like, my life is going nowhere. I'm doing nothing. I'm in the prison. When's this going to change? Next time you find yourself in a season of languishing, take more naps. Why? Because point number four, when things finally do begin to happen, they happen fast. How do I know? I read my Bible. One day, Joshua is just the heir apparent to Moses like he has been for years. The next day, God takes Moses up onto a mountaintop, kills him, and now Joshua is in charge. Things change suddenly. One day, Yael is just cleaning out her tent like she's been doing for years. The very next day, Sisera, the commanding general of God's enemies, shows up in her tent just in time to be killed. One day, James and John are just fishing like they've been doing for years. The very next day, Jesus shows up and pow! They are disciples. And last time I checked, the very foundations of the New Jerusalem bear their name. Talk about a life-changing situation. 
One day, Mary of Magdala is just processing fish in Magdala and maybe doing a little bit of flirting. The next, the Savior shows up and nothing is ever the same again. That's what life is like. It's boring, it's boring, it's boring, it's boring. It's crazy! Amen? Have you experienced this? This is the pattern of living. Boring, 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 boring. Pow! Keep that in mind as you learn to hold on tight. And point number five, even though you're all dressed up and not sure how it's going to go, point number six, put your trust in God. Where do I get this from? I get this out of verses 14 through 16. Pharaoh says, go get me that Jew. They go and get him. He's probably looking like a Jew. Has long hair and a beard. He's been in prison. He looks filthy. What do they do? They shave him, probably like an Egyptian. All the hair is gone, maybe a little cue at the back. Nice clean robe. They probably shaved his whole body. The Egyptians weren't big fans of hair. We know this from their mummified remains, right? Not a lot of hair. Okay, so they make him look good, they dress him up, and they put him in front of Pharaoh. I love the pause between um, verse 14, let me get it right. Yeah, verse 14 and verse 15. So they go get him, clean him up, and he came in before Pharaoh, period. And then verse 15, Pharaoh said. So there's some space between verse 14 and verse 15 where Joseph is standing there looking like an Egyptian. Not sure how this is going to go. It's kind of nice to be dressed up after being in prison for so long. Kind of excited about this change, but I don't know what's going to happen. Can you identify? Looks like things have changed, but you're not sure how it's going to go. What do you do in that moment? Do like Joseph did. Put your trust in God. What's the principle here? The principle here is just because things have turned doesn't mean everything is suddenly guaranteed. Somebody better shout in this house. Okay, things have turned. Don't you think like it's going to turn and then everything's going to be perfect? Let me disabuse you of that illusion so that when things turn and are not perfect, you don't find yourself depressed or think that somehow God has forsaken you, right? Oftentimes, things turn. The tide has turned, but that doesn't mean everything is guaranteed. So in this moment of uncertainty between verse 14 and 15, what is Joseph's go-to? In verse 16, he testifies to it. Pharaoh says, I hear you can interpret dreams. Joseph puts his weight in God's camp. He says, it is not me. God will answer the peace of Pharaoh. That's the little interpretation there from the Hebrew. It is not me. God will answer the peace of Pharaoh. You want a pithy statement to hold on to as you learn to hang on? Here it is. Make God your go-to. Okay, that's your pithy statement. Make God your go-to. How do I know that that's what Joseph's doing? Because of verse 25. Okay, God is the active partner. This is point number seven if you're keeping track. Okay, you want to make God your go-to because he is the active partner. In verse 25, what does Joseph say? God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. After Pharaoh tells Joseph his dreams, Joseph begins his interpretation by saying, God has told Pharaoh what he, what God, is about to do. Who is the active partner here? God is the active partner here. Whose word are we waiting for here? We are waiting for the word of the Lord. Why? Because they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Isaiah 40, 31. So here's your very high-level pastoral application. Um, chill out as you're learning to wait. Chill out. Wait for God. You're welcome. Chill out. Relax. Wait for God. Because there's no stopping him. We know this from verses 29 through 32. I'm not reading them to you because I'm rushing, but I should probably read this one to you. 29 through 32. Oh, no, I don't need to read it to you. He says, look, there's going to come seven years of plenty, then seven years of famine. Okay? This is what's going to happen, and um, it's going to consume the land. The, 
Famine will be like the worst thing you've ever seen. He says the dream is double because it's fixed by God, and that means that God will shortly bring it about. So here's the point. Number eight, once God decides, it's decided. Okay, once he makes up his mind, there's no unmaking it. This is very encouraging because as God the Son made flesh, Jesus Christ hung upon his cross, suffering and dying in your place for your sins, bearing the penalty for our sin. As he died, what's his last words? It is finished. It's done. It's done. Your salvation is done. It's done. He's accomplished it. Once God decides, it is decided. In light of the fact that he's decided and it's done, all you need to do, point number nine, like Joseph, is put yourself in his hand. This is what happens in verse 33. It may seem like he's being Israeli. Let Pharaoh um, select a wise and discerning man. It seems like Joseph's putting himself forward here, a little bit of chutzpah. But what he's really doing is he's putting himself in God's hand. Because he says to Pharaoh in verses 34 through 36, appoint overseers, collect a fifth of the produce, because the land's going to produce abundantly for seven years. And then seven years of famine are going to come. So store it all up so the land won't perish. Joseph is suggesting concrete action based on something he hasn't seen. Does Joseph know that the land is going to produce abundantly? Not really, it hasn't happened yet. Does Joseph know that a severe famine is going to follow those seven years of abundance? No, it hasn't happened yet. He doesn't know, but he believes. And then he acts in accordance with his beliefs. My dear friends, that is called faith. Not acting primarily based on what you know or have learned. Not letting pragmatism be the primary driver in your life but letting those things that you believe about God and his kingdom be the things that drive you to act. You know what's wonderful about faith? People notice it. You see that that's what happens in our story? Verse 38. Can we find a man like this in whom is the wind of God? Says Pharaoh to his advisors. Can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God, the ruach, the wind of God? If you want to learn to uh, hang on tight, point number 10, stay full of the wind of God. Learn to live like a sailor. I'm a sailor. You know how sailors live? With their eyes to the sky. Why? Always watching the weather so that we will know if there's wind. And if there is wind, from what direction it is blowing and to what direction it is blowing. Why? We'll receive it because you only go where the wind takes you. And we are talking here about the wind of God, the spirit of God, Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. If you want to learn to hang on tight, stay full of the wind of God. Begin living like a sailor with your eyes on the sky. Familiarize yourself with the ways of God to the point that you can recognize and catch his wind. Which um, you're going to need, by the way, because you're about to get to work. This is what happens in verses 39 through 45. All of uh, Joseph's dreams come true. Pharaoh elevates him to the position of Grand Vizier, second most powerful man in the kingdom. He even gives him a noble wife, Asenat, the daughter of the priest of On. Gives him a gold chain, signet ring of office. Says nobody can even stand or sit without your say-so. Joseph goes from a prisoner to the Grand Vizier. Let me just say, point number 11, in case you're waiting on God, dreams do come true. You can bet that as he set foot in that second chariot and they drove him through the city and the excubitors in front of him shouted out, bend the knee! And all of Egypt bent their knees before him. At least a little bit of an Israeli grin showed up in the corner of his mouth. 
Dreams do come true. In one day he goes from prisoner to grand vizier, except it wasn't one day. Verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh. How old was Joseph when he moved down to Egypt? Somebody remind me from week one. 17. Plus what equals 30? 13. 13 years a slave. You're darn right. You're going to need to learn to hold on tight for 13 years. Well, Todd, what could possibly make me want to wait that long? Um, Point number 12, knowing that forgetfulness and blessing will be yours. What happens in verses 50 through 52? He has two sons before the first year of famine hits. What does he name the first son? Menashe. You know what Menashe means? He makes me rest. Rest. Menashe from the root lishon, to sleep. So he names his first son, in essence, the goodness of God is comforting like the forgetfulness of sleep. Let's put it in today's vernacular. He makes me rest. That's the name of his firstborn. His secondborn, Ephraim, means uh, literally, hey, double fruit. (laughs) He names his second son, the goodness of God is hope building like double fruitfulness. People start asking you how you're feeling. Be like, Joseph, I'm feeling fruity. Pastor Todd is feeling fruity. Your pastor's really fruity. I know, he's happy about it too. I don't know about you, but I want to be someone who lives with God's double portion ever in my mind. Hey, double fruit. Peace and fruitfulness, that's what God gives. Somebody shout in this house. That's not good enough. Somebody help me in this house. Peace and fruitfulness. That's what God gives. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. That's why you should hold on tight to um, say nothing of the fact that, um, point number 13, all the stories are coming true. And worship team, you can join me because I'm done. All the stories are coming true. What happens in uh, verses 53 through 54? Um, The seven years of plenty, they occurred. And they came to an end. Seven years of famine began to come. Just as Joseph had said, there was famine in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. Let me just say, God came through. And just in case um, you forgot already what God does when he comes through, what does God do when he comes through? He saves. He saves. Which is why verse 57 says what it says. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Do not fail to notice that Joseph becomes a type of savior on a global scale. Um, gee, you know, where have I heard that one before? Exactly. So uh, hold on tight because the tide will turn.